This program has been made possible through the support of Vanda, creators of solutions for non-24 disorder. ACB thanks Vanda for their support. Learn more about non-24 by visiting their website at www.non24.com. You're listening to coverage of the 2021 convention of the American Council of the Blind. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The opening code is 53202. So 53202 for the opening CEU code. This panel that we have for the next hour and 15 minutes I have two incredible women, both of whom I have known, one for a very long time and one for quite a while. Deborah Kendrick, whom many of you know. Deborah is a long, long time ACB member. She is an author. When I think of Deborah, I think of sort of a Renaissance woman. She does a lot of different things. But today, She is on here because she is the author of Navigating the Healthcare System as an Adult with Vision Loss. And we have a woman I've known for a number of years. I like attorneys because I have to work with them. But this particular woman, this particular attorney, Meredith Weaver from Disability Rights Advocates, is more than just an attorney. She's an advocate. She's a wonderful person to deal with. She cares about the people she serves. And I've been involved with, with Meredith on various healthcare and other types of cases. And this is not her first ACB convention, I don't believe. Just as an introduction, and then I'm going to let these ladies take it away. As we get older, especially, the healthcare system becomes even more challenging for a blind person or a low vision person than ever before. Our healthcare needs are greater. We have more doctors and other healthcare professionals to go to and to learn about and to educate. And the system is always difficult for people with vision loss. And it only gets more so the older we get. And with that, I want to let these two guests of ours talk today. And first, we'll go to Deborah Kendrick to talk about her feelings about the healthcare system for people with vision loss and what we can do to make things a little easier. So, Deborah? Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for hosting this panel and for inviting me to be a part of it. And I also want to say thank you to everyone who is here. I am astonished when I saw the program. And I saw the other amazing (laughs) sessions that were concurrent with ours. I thought, oh, Meredith and I are just going to have a really good time talking to each other. But there are so many of you here and so many names that that I, well, many names that I recognize and many that I don't. So I look forward to hearing from you. What we're going to do is we kind of divided it into what I think of as the soft parts and the hard parts. So I'm going to talk about kind of the soft aspects of this topic, healthcare and and adults with vision loss. And Meredith is going to talk about some hard, cold facts like rights and things of that sort. So 
I wrote this book last year that was published by National Braille Press. And ironically, you know, I've published a few million words in my time and thousands of articles. And one weakness of mine in terms of writing has always been that I rarely can come up with good titles. And this book was the exception. I knew what the book would be called before I wrote a word. And the title is Navigating Healthcare When All They Can See Is That You Can't. And that pretty much sums up what the book is about. This isn't a book about Obamacare or Medicare. It's a book about being seen for the reason that you are seeking medical attention and not for that reason that everyone seems unable to stop looking at, which is that you're blind or have vision loss. Thinking about talking to this group in particular, I thought, you know, it's even more relevant to those of us who are older, because as I'm sure some of you are aware, and if you aren't aware, then start thinking about it. Now that you're a little bit older, you know, maybe your hair is gray or white, or maybe you, you, you don't walk as quickly as you did, or you've got, you know, some lines around the eyes, whatever, I, I don't know, you know. But we are perceived differently for that additional reason of age. And I remember my mother-in-law, who I was very close to, I remember her lamenting to me when she was maybe in her 50s, maybe early 60s, that suddenly she would go to the dentist or the optometrist and people would call her sweetie or call her by her first name or speak to her in a voice as if they were talking to a preschooler. So we we already had this with blindness and vision loss, and now you add age to that. So what I have done with this book is why I wrote it, I suspect, is that I've had a lot of medical experience as myself being a patient because of some additional disabilities that I've acquired in the last few years. And of course, many years interacting with the medical profession as a parent particularly with one of my children who was chronic asthmatic. So we were in and out of many uh, medical facilities. So what I talk about in the book, and I'll talk to you about for a minute here, is to circumvent that problem of you go to an urgent care or a new doctor's office or an emergency room, and you are there because maybe you're having a stroke, or maybe you just fell off a ladder and you broke your leg, or maybe you tripped on some uh, butter that somebody dripped (laughs) on the sidewalk and you fell and hit your head. But inevitably, when you're blind, what they see first is that you're blind. And so you get the questions of, how much can you actually see? Or, well, I don't know if this will mean anything to you, or can you fill out these papers? Or the most common, of course, is talking to the person who's with you, even if the person is a Lyft driver who just helped you get in and find the registration desk. So by thinking, and this didn't just come to me in in a flash, but it's evolved over time and many, many experiences is that 
If we are going to get the medical attention that we need and we deserve, then we are going to have to be much more proactive and much more assertive than maybe a sighted person. Frankly, I think that we live in a time where everybody, blind or sighted, needs to be much more informed medically and much more in charge of our own medical fate. And I say that, again, based in a fair amount of experience, I firmly believe that I have had at least one incident and probably more where I got inadequate or inappropriate medical care because I failed to be assertive. And similarly, I know that there have been times when I have gotten exactly the care I needed because I was assertive and because I helped to diagnose my own situation. So in order to do that, in order to circumvent this problem of medical professionals seeing your blindness and not you or the other medical reasons that you are on the premises, we need to develop a certain mindset. We need to be prepared and to maybe even do a little bit of role-playing if it's not your nature to interact with medical professionals when all they can see is that you can't. And if I give lots of examples and suggestions in the book, but just to give you a few, well, first of all, emergencies don't wait for you to do your research. So I would strongly recommend to everyone, whether you have any ongoing health concerns or not, A, that you have a primary care physician, B, that you know where the nearest urgent care facilities are and that you have those names and numbers and addresses readily available to you so that if you suddenly need to visit one of them, you can give that address to a Lyft or Uber driver or neighbor or whomever. And see that you have the names of the hospitals near you because frequently if you call 911 and you're picked up by an ambulance, you may well be given a choice of which hospital you would like to go to. And it's good to know if your primary care physician practices at hospital A or B and not C or D, because you might want to go where your primary care physician is. So that's one thing is be prepared with this kind of information beforehand. And then I say in the book that I think of myself as an introvert who trained myself to be an extrovert because I learned a long time ago that I get a little more attention if I have something to say. And particularly when my life is on the line, as it is in a medical situation, being proactive, being assertive, letting your personality be known, be ready to say little things about your life talk about your kids or your boss or your colleagues or your job. Just drop things into the conversation as you're walking down the hall or being wheeled on a gurney through the emergency room. If you are able to be chatty, it makes a huge amount of difference to stamp the fact on people who are interacting with you that you are a person. And another tidbit of advice that I give in the book is have your own personal elevator speech about your vision, because inevitably, 
They are going to ask, no matter what the situation, how severe it is, you are going to be asked, how much can you see? Can you see this? Can you see that? And if you have a ready-made speech available that's, you know, I'd say preferably 20 seconds long, that sums it up and dismisses it, then all the better, because then you can move on to the chest pains you're having or the pain in your head or the bone that you just broke falling down the stairs or or whatever else. There's a lot more, but I want for all of us to hear what Meredith has to say about our rights. And then I think our most interesting part of this panel will be coming from you with your questions. So Meredith, I'm going to kick it over to you. Thank you. Uh, This is Meredith Weaver. Again, I'm a staff attorney at Disability Rights Advocates. I've uh, been there for about five years and have worked uh, with Jeff and others on cases related to healthcare access. Thank you so much, Jeff and the Alliance for the invitation to talk today and Deborah for sharing all of your useful information. As Deborah mentioned, I'm kind of here to where she talks about the pragmatic carrots, I'm kind of here to talk about the backstop sticks of uh, what the law provides. And so healthcare facilities like hospitals, doctor's offices, pharmacies, dentist's offices, and others are covered by a number of different federal anti-discrimination laws, including Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which uh, covers programs that receive federal funding, They're covered by Title III of the ADA, which covers places of public accommodation, and sometimes also Title II, which covers state and local governments. So, for instance, if uh, if the state or a state university operates a hospital, that would be covered by Title II of the ADA. And then there's also more recently Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, which has anti-discrimination rules and regulations as well. So all of these laws prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability and set some specific requirements. So first, healthcare providers must provide effective communication to patients and to companions. So where Deborah mentioned involvement in healthcare settings as a parent or as a spouse, as a companion to a patient, you also have rights to effective communication. So what that means is that the provider has to ensure that you can receive information from them and convey information to them. And that may mean electronically for use with a computer screen reading program or via large print or braille or through use of a sighted person who helps fill in forms. As long as the method of communication is effective, timely, and ensures that you have the same level of privacy as others, then the facility doesn't necessarily have to provide the method you request, but they do still have to provide effective communication. So for instance, an example may be, let's say you would prefer to receive accessible PDFs in advance of an appointment to fill out and return. But if all other patients receive forms when they get to the office, then it would be acceptable for the healthcare provider to opt to use a qualified reader or and writer to assist with completion of forms. But they'd still need to do that in a way that you receive privacy. So they would need to go to a private location in order to fill out those forms, not just stay in the waiting area where you could be overheard. 
Digital accessibility is also required for effective communication, and, and that would include things like websites, medical kiosks, which I think were used more and more, but have maybe scaled back somewhat at this point, especially during the pandemic. Electronic healthcare records, telecommunications, and increasingly telehealth is used as well, and there are access requirements there. So in addition to effective communication, healthcare providers must also comply with physical access rules. So the building itself is accessible. The rules there are a little bit complicated in terms of the extent of accessibility required because it depends on when the facility was built and whether it's been remodeled. Um, but for even for facilities that were built prior to the ADA, entities still must perform readily achievable barrier removal at facilities. So things that are easy and don't cost a whole lot, for instance, putting in braille signage, changing door handles for increased mobility because knobs aren't very good, things like that that are simple. They may not have to perform a total remodel of patient rooms if they weren't already going to do that, but they still have to make what changes they can. So third, healthcare providers are required to make reasonable modifications or changes to their policies, practices, and procedures to provide equal access to facilities. For instance, that would include allowing a service animal in an exam room. And then a last requirement under Title II of the ADA and also the Affordable Care Act have requirements with regards to compliance coordinators. So identifying a person who is in charge of making sure that the, that the healthcare provider complies with those anti-discrimination rules and also having a grievance procedure for patients and companions to make complaints. The problems that we hear about frequently seem to have kind of three different main causes. One is a lack of institutional policies and procedures. So for instance, there's no process for requesting or creating Braille documents if requested, or there's no process for testing a web or mobile update for accessibility before they release that online. Those kind of big institutional policies and procedures. Another key problem is a lack of sufficient training for personnel. And I think this is one of the most widespread problems because even if an institution has policies and practices in place, it can be hard to keep staff trained well enough to actually make that happen in the patient care room. So that is especially a problem if they have high turnover or if the staff don't frequently encounter patients who are blind or have low vision. It's easy to kind of forget those things that you might have learned at your annual training or at onboarding. And then the third major thing, especially now as, as healthcare has moved even more into this digital healthcare environment, is the inaccessibility of available digital patient portal platforms. So Epic, maybe you've heard of it, is the largest electronic medical record vendor in the nation. And while they've made some progress, they still seem to lag in terms of accessibility and others in the industry aren't much better. And so uh, it's difficult to get them to change their ways when they have so much market power and the federal accessibility laws don't explicitly bring them within the ambit of the rules. So in a sense, even though it is the healthcare provider's obligation and responsibility to provide an accessible platform, the platforms that are available to them 
tend to not be accessible. And so that's kind of an institutional problem, a systemic problem that we are trying to work on from the legal aspect, but um, I think also more policy would be helpful. So that's my presentation. I'm happy to move on to Q&A. Just with a couple of things that came to my mind as I was listening, those are that training is the biggest problem that we face no matter what industry we're interacting with. And it's just an ongoing problem because if staff are trained and they only see one blind person a year, well, then they forget what they learn. So it's all the more reason that the responsibility, if we're going to get what we deserve and what we need in medical environments, that responsibility has to fall back on us, which means we've got to put out a little more energy. What I meant to say initially and and didn't, so I'll say now, is that my book is, it's a small book. It doesn't take long to read. And um, I don't make anything from from sales. So (laughs) it's a profit thing. But what it is more than anything else is a book to help you get the right mindset. Because that's, if we are going to get what we need in medical environments, we have got to go in with the right mindset. We have to go in being ready to sell ourselves as human beings who just happen to be blind so that we get the medical attention that we need. So Excellent. So um, I want to also recognize our host, fellow CCB member of mine, Penny Valdivinos. Thank you, Penny, for hosting us today. And Debbie Hazelton, who's been in charge of our stream. So, Penny, do we have any raised hands? Yes, we do. Ellen Lemley, you may talk. I just want to say, if you've not read Deborah's book, it's excellent. Read it. It won't take much time, and it's got a lot of good points. I just want to add to what she said, and it's true whether you're blind or not. You've got to go in when you deal with medical people. Nobody knows your medical condition better than you do. You may not know all the, all the scientific stuff, but you know what's going on with your body better than they do. And don't treat the people that are dealing with you like gods. Treat them like people. That's all they are. They're there to help you. But turn your listening ears on, or if you can't hear well, get somebody that can. And be polite. Listen for their names. Call them by their names. You'll get a lot better treatment when you go in treating people nicely than if you go in making all kinds of demands and stuff. I can't emphasize that enough. I try real hard whenever I go anywhere. And it doesn't matter. I don't care if it's a person pushing the laundry cart or whatever. Listen for their names. Be polite. You'll get a lot better treatment while you're there than if you don't do that. But uh, stand up, you know, make your wishes known and say, look, I know I'm not feeling well. This is what's happening. And just be firm and and be polite while you're at it. So thanks. Thank you, Alan. Great points. Next, we have area code 317. I have a couple of comments. Yes, I'm being polite. I went to my health insurance company that I cannot name, but they are very interested in the problem of people being denied health care who are in the digital divide that Jeffrey Petty referred to who do not have digital phones or can't use the various charting software. In 2020, and you know, I've talked to people all over the country with this, those who have talked to me about it, Individuals could receive a phone call back on a landline. The Medicare regulations allow this. 
they allow the billing for a, quote, simple phone without video capability, unquote. I'm quoting from the regs. I've filed complaints with Medicare. I've got the attention of the insurance company. I'm paying premiums and taxes. What I've heard from the healthcare people, the large hospital that my doctors are affiliated with, and this is serious, and this is why I think it's something we could use, and you know, this is my opinion, and this is what I've heard because I've done the research. When we hit the flu season for next year, if one has the flu, the doctor's office can turn someone away because if you don't have a digital phone, how do they know you don't have COVID? And so they can direct people to the ER, which is exactly what the ER doesn't want. It's very expensive. I'd like to hear the uh, panel's comments on this because I've contacted the ADA centers. I've filed complaints, polite complaints with the hospital chain. They know that people are upset about this. And I've gone to the minority health groups who are also starting to become concerned because older people and minorities have the same, you know, a similar problem. They may not have a digital phone. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much. Your first name? Pat. Either one of you? Just a clarification, Did because it was a little bit difficult for me to hear you. Did you say that the concern is when flu season comes up, healthcare providers will be able to turn people away because they don't have a digital phone? Is that what you said? Yes, it's happened to me twice this year. I had to go to an immediate care facility to get an emergency uh, blood test. The policy, because I was trying to change doctors and I talked to eight offices throughout the vast network because I live in a major city, is that if one has a flu-like illness and we don't want to expose, and I'm not being snarky, I understand they have to protect themselves in the offices. It could be COVID or flu. If one does not have a digital phone, they will not talk to you. Whereas in 2020, I had phone calls made to me you know, via my flip phone, and they are not helping people with the website. So this is sending people to the ER. And the problem with this is that the health insurance company will not cover a minor ER visit. Therefore, people are going to end up owning that bill. And this is the policy of a vast hospital chain covering my entire state. And this is happening to other people. That's why I'm bringing it up, because we're going to have a train wreck during the flu season if they enforce this. That's my personal opinion. So with respect to disability discrimination... The analysis would be kind of uh, whether that discriminates against someone based on a disability. And so I see the problem, certainly, right? Because this creates a divide between people who have the economic means or uh, the capability to use a digital phone and those who do not. But in order to be prohibited under anti-discrimination laws, that would have to be a result of one's disability. And so you, you mentioned also not making the websites accessible. If the rule that they have in place is we won't see someone in person if they have flu-like symptoms, but we will see them through other means, e.g. telephonic or video visit or any of these things, one of those methods would have to be accessible for someone who is blind or has low vision. So, you know, I think it's kind of a fact and at least in terms of the legal question, it would be a little bit more of a fact and sense of inquiry of, of what is the actual rule in place and what kinds of accommodations are not being provided. And if there's no accommodation being provided and it is because someone is blind or has low vision, then that would be discrimination. Kathy Lyons, you may speak. I'm going to ask folks to try and be brief with your questions so that we can get everybody in. I just wanted to comment that there's also a bias against women 
I know of two people that went to the ER. Uh, one person had numbness from the tip of the middle finger to the elbow on both sides. And they said it was a panic attack because the person was a woman. Another person went with a TIA and they were told that that was a panic attack. And so I think, you know, if you're a woman with these health concerns, you're in a bad spot because I don't know. Anyway, that's my comment. Thank you. I don't doubt that those situations happened, Kathy. That's the kind of thing that I talk about in the book is that you need to be proactive, be able to explain your, and, and be, you can be insistent and solid and firm without being obnoxious. It's, it's tough. I mean, it's something that we really have to think about because, you know, all of those old adages about, you know, you, <laughs> the squeaky wheel gets the grease, they become cliches because they're true. And, you know, you get more flies with honey than with vinegar, you know, all those kinds of sayings. They're true. So you you need to be interactive and proactive and explain your situation, but you also need to be tough. And so if you're the person in that situation and you feel that your complaint is being dismissed, then you have every right to say so. And if possible, to ask for another physician or another treatment person. I have been in situations where what's happening to me is not appropriate. I went to an urgent care once with a, um, I had a really serious case of bronchitis. I could hardly breathe. And I knew that's what I had because I've had it before. And the nurse got so hung up taking my blood pressure. Well, the blood pressure thing was broken. It was broken and it wouldn't let go of my arm. And meanwhile, I know I need some serious drugs because I can't breathe. And she's like on this blood pressure thing for, you know, I don't know, it felt like years. It was probably three minutes. And I just said to her, you have got to stop. Just stop. Take that damn thing off my arm. Excusez-moi. It hurts and it's not working. I don't know what's wrong with you. We need to, I mean, I didn't say I don't know what's wrong with you because that's exactly what we want to do. But what we shouldn't do is be aggressive and offensive. But at the same time, you need to speak up for yourself. So that's heartbreaking to hear that someone had a TIA and was being told they were having a panic attack. But I would, again, we don't all have perfect lives either, where we always have someone to go with us. But if possible, in a, in a, a critical situation like that, I would hope that you would have someone to go with you in, in the event that you're going to have trouble speaking for yourself. Okay, next hand, Penny. Chris Carter, you may speak. Speaking to you as a former nurse practitioner with my vision loss, I lost my job. There is a lot to be said about the patients speaking up for themselves, but they also need to understand they need to be timely with their comments. Uh, they need to be accurate. So there has to be some accountability on both sides. But most importantly, we need to educate, educate, educate every time we go into an office that this is how we need to be addressed. This is what we need. So it needs to be done in a really careful manner to make sure that they understand you need a sighted guide. You need assistance with your paperwork. 
one of the things that I'm trying to do here locally in my uh, city is I'm going and speaking to the nursing schools, and I'm going to also approach the two major networks and see if I can't put together some type of a presentation so that they can use that in their yearly education. So anybody who has lost their vision and has that capability, I beseech you to reach out to your networks and try and do some of this, because the more we advocate, the better it will be for everybody, not just ourselves. Where are you located, Chris? I'm in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, you're my neighbor. If you're putting something together of that sort, I would encourage you to look into using my book, you know, talk to National Um, Braille Press about. Yes, I plan to get your book and read it. Yeah. And if there's anything I can do in coordination with ACB to help with this, I'm all in. Just contact me. I'd love to help. Before we go to the next hand, I think so we don't get caught at the very end. Let's have Deborah, you give your website so that people can go on and look at your materials. And then Meredith, we keep, we don't want to obviously give personal contact information, but you can give your work contact information during this community event. So Deborah, starting with you, your website. Actually, I don't have a website, but you know. what I can give is information about the books. Navigating Healthcare When All They Can See Is That You Can't is available in hard copy Braille, large print, and a number of downloadable formats from National Braille Press. And the website is www.nbpnationalbraillepress.org. And the phone number is 800-548-7323. It's a small book. And when I wrote it and, and the editor at National Braille Press was working on it, she said, I wish we could put this in the hands of every physician in America, which to me is A, the highest praise, and B, that's what I want. If you read the book, you'll see. I mean, it's not clinical. It's not medical. It's human. So I, I hope, you know, that it, as I, I say that I, it's kind of my love letter to all my blind brothers and sisters everywhere to sort of be a, an encouragement, but it's, it's also educational, informative for medical professionals. Oh, and if you want to find me, you, I'm just everywhere. You can find me everywhere. I know we're not supposed to give personal email addresses while we're s- streaming, so, but I'm everywhere. I'm Access World and, you know, longtime newspaper columnist. So just, you know, Google me if you want to find me. Okay. Meredith. My email is mweaver at dralegal.org. And phone number is 510 Three, four. Work phone, just like all of your cell phones, I'm sure. I get lots of spam calls. So please do leave a message. I may not answer it if I don't recognize your number, but please leave a message and you will get the call back. Okay. Thank you. Next hand is Veronica Elise. Veronica from Veronica. Santa Cruz. Yes. Hey. Long I, time. This is great timing, you guys, because I have a doctor's appointment tomorrow. And I have a bit of a conundrum, and this is facing kind of both extremes at the same time. In diabetes, we deal with a lot of technology, if you're type 1. And so I busted my butt and did a bunch of workarounds to use an insulin pump. So what happens, I get in the appointment, and it's like, 
everything I do. Oh, you're so marvelous. You're so, and so I'm not getting the help I need. So tomorrow I have to go in there and try to get her to help me with a problem that I'm having with the pump, which has nothing to do with the blindness stuff. And the problem is the minute you have a problem, they go right to, can your husband help you? So what I'm thinking is, If she does that tomorrow, saying, thanks for the compliment, now can we address the problem that I'm having? And part of me wants to say, what would you tell a sighted person who had this problem with the pump? Do you guys think that's out of line? No, Veronica, that's exactly right. That's that's exactly a a (laughs) perfect thing to say. And another thing is, again, this, this whole concept of, you know, being proactive, giving information up front, start talking about yourself before you ask the question. I mean, I frequently take technology with me into a new physician's office, not because I'm going to use it, but because I look like I'm going to use it. And if they see the Braille note taker, the tablet, the iPhone, whatever in my hand, then there's a connection. Oh, oh, well, oh, maybe she's not a moron. So if you say that the help you need with the pump is not technological, but is not vision related. So you might say, I'm no stranger to technology. You know, I use I use an iPhone or I use this or I use that or say what you can do, but can't figure out on the pump. You know, I, I'm having trouble sorting this out. I can do blah, blah, blah. And right. get some information on the table about what Veronica can do before there's time for the assumptions to be formed of what you can't do. Right. Well, she, you know, she just thinks that I'm such an inspiration. So it almost doesn't matter what my numbers are. Everything I, you know, it's like, you're doing great. It's like, we get two extremes. And I wanted to make sure that those two extremes got brought up because they can happen. Right. Good point. Thank you. Thank you. Next hand. Sarah, you may speak. I've got two things I want to bring up. One is a good thing. And one is a problem I'm having. The good thing is that my... I was telling my physical therapist, I just had shoulder surgery on my dominant arm and it was pretty bad. So I've been in therapy for like three months. And one thing I told him, I said, I'm not satisfied. I need to be able to use my white cane. You know, I can't do anything without my white cane. I'm totally blind. And they're like, well, how do you use your white cane? And so I gave them an example and they said, well, bring it with you next time. So I brought it and voila, we went through a, we actually went through cane skills. Oh, that's great. That's and it great. was really, I was really impressed. And the physical therapist aid was really willing to work with me. And they're really cool like that. And it's called ATI physical therapy. So they're really good. But two problems that I'm having, one is with the health department. And this is almost like, I don't know if, you know, I don't even know if blindness is the issue, but I have other medical issues and to be vaccinated, I need to be seen at my regular clinic, but the health department isn't willing to work with me. They're like, well, you can go to another clinic. And I'm like, no, I can't go to another clinic because they don't know me. Maybe part of that is because of my blindness and because of my issues that goes on, you know, part of it has to do with my blindness, but I, you know, I like breathing. They know what I'm sensitive to and they know when something's wrong because they've seen me. The other problem I'm having is I've got an epic problem. I keep getting texts saying that I've got an appointment. I just got one this morning. In fact, you've got a phone appointment on Wednesday. And I tried to confirm the appointment on my iPhone. Guess what? Epic strikes again. Are we getting anywhere with Epic on them improving the system? 
I'm not so one point before Meredith takes over. (laughs) Sometimes you have the option of doing either texts or phone, and you might check into your system to see whether they will give you phone messages instead of text. I've been asking for that. that. I've been asking for Uh, that for a year, and I keep getting texts, Uh, and it's like, yeah, okay. Well, go ahead, Meredith. So with respect to Epic, I'm, it's kind of fits and starts, I think, is what I would say. So far, I am not aware of an effort to directly go after, for lack of a better word, Epic. They haven't been directly challenged. That's partially because under the federal laws, it's a little difficult. But some healthcare companies have been trying to get them to do more. My understanding is that they do have in place some accessibility testing. It does not seem to be sufficient based on everything I've heard from basically anyone who has used it with a screen reader. So I unfortunately don't really have better information for you other than the problem is not solved. and uh, Yeah, basically what I have to do is I get the text and then I have to call the clinic. Mm-hmm. And the clinic was just taken over by a large company about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to name that big company, but I'm sure we all yeah. know it. What state are you located in? I'm in Washington State. Washington State. Okay. DRA is currently investigating Epic, and we have been gathering information from folks whose healthcare providers use Epic you're welcome to reach out to me and we can kind of gather some information from you about the specific problems that you're use, that you're experiencing. I also want your book. Yeah, De- Deborah's book is fantastic. I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, I'm actually I'm actually going to um I'm on a program because um I'm extremely low income. I'm on a, um I'm on a program because I need as much education in the health department as I can get. I'm pretty sure they'll be able to get me the book. With respect but, to the uh, vaccination, it it sounds like it could be an accommodation for a different disability is maybe what it sounds like for them to provide the vaccine at a specific location. If that's the case, as much as possible, using that wording uh, of reasonable modification to your policy or accommodation, I need this because of X disability, X symptoms, using that language to make it more specific so that they don't think she just wants it at somewhere that's familiar to her, but rather explains why that's important and necessary for you may be useful in terms of a pragmatic solution. The other potential Um, solution, Karen, with respect to the vaccination issue is that if you can't get anywhere with your provider or with the county department or whatever, you might reach out to Disability Rights Washington because oftentimes these particular state protection advocacy agencies like Disability Rights Washington are getting involved in vaccination concerns. Mm -hmm. And so I would, um, you know, you can Google their name or have somebody find you their number. I don't have it, but, but they might be able to help you in this area. Yeah. Also, a nurse suggested I just had a procedure done and the nurse suggested that I go around it because unfortunately I did have COVID and she doesn't think that I need the vaccine, but she's not a doctor. So she's thinking that get lab tests to see if I've got antibodies to avoid the situation altogether. But still, Mm -hmm. I do want to complain about the I do want to file a grievance about the situation. I will contact Disability Rights of Washington State. Thank you for your help. I'm getting that book. Right. Take care. Larry you Johnson, you may speak. 
First of all, I want to say how much I really, really enjoy listening to Deborah and reading everything that she writes. She is articulate, compassionate, and tremendously insightful. So congratulations on your new book. I haven't gotten to it yet. There are two points I want to bring up, and maybe you address them in your book. But uh, these are things that I have encountered. One is in going into a doctor's office and being presented with paperwork to fill out, which asks you all kinds of embarrassing questions. Yes. And what I always say is, hold it. I need to go somewhere privately for you to ask me these questions. Right, exactly. That's really, really important to do that. And sometimes they try to give it to my driver and say, well, she can help you. I said, no, she can't. I talk about that quite a bit in the Good. in the book because it's in actually in the intro because it's one of the greatest pet peeves actually yeah, a, for, uh, for me. But I'm finding, and you know, it's going to vary from clinic to clinic and doctor's office to doctor's office. But again, the key is, you know, being proactive. So what I recommend typically is, is if that happens to say, I'm not going to talk about my private medical history in this room, we need to find a private place. But what I'm finding more and more is that there seems to be a little bit of growing savvy there because I've personally have had a couple of situations where the person in the office has actually said to me, we've got some medical forms to fill out, give me a minute, and uh, we'll go down the hall to a private room. Excellent. The other point before Jeff cuts me off is patient (laughs) portals. They are terrible to try to navigate. You know, this is where you supposedly get your test results and your new appointment. They are very, very inaccessible, and I have absolutely refused to participate in them. I think that things are getting better, and I don't address it much in the book because it seemed to me that we were at a turning point last year. I think things are getting better. The problem is there are so many of them and they're not all made equal, of course. You know, I've found that a few with new physicians that I've had, I actually can navigate very nicely. And if it could always be that way, then, you know, how great that would be. But in the meantime, I think it's important, again, that we let it be known that we're not technological Luddites. I mean, maybe some of us are, and that's okay. That's okay. But if you are a person who uses technology, don't let the assumption be made that, oh, because this person is blind, then they can't do it. And say, you know, your site is inaccessible and work on it from there. I have had a couple of offices email me scan forms and put them into DOCX files or the body of an email message at my instruction, telling them that's what I can read, then I fill them out and print them out and take them in with me. So make suggestions. Let it be known that I can't do this because of your system, not because of my inadequacy. I can't do this, but if you send it to me this way, I could do it. Thanks for doing the book. Thank you. It's great to hear your voice, Larry. Clark Rushfeld. Thank you so much. And Jeff, thanks for this great session. Uh, My question's for Meredith, and it has to deal with durable medical equipment and remote diagnostic equipment. So we hear a lot of ACB members, especially those with diabetes, that their continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps do not provide 
accessible information and non-visual access. So what laws and regulations are there in place to ensure that healthcare providers, Medicare, are providing to consumers with disabilities durable medical equipment and remote diagnostic equipment with non-visual accessible access? Thank you. Thanks for the question. It's actually a new one for me. I I haven't uh, dealt with that before, but it makes total sense. I mean, you know, we have dealt with it in the context of prescriptions and the development of things like uh, talking prescriptions and things like that. It makes sense that similar problems would be the case with durable medical equipment like insulin pumps. There are some regulations that deal with medical equipment. I believe those are more specifically related to things like exam rooms and beds and lifts and things like that. I would need to look more specifically to see if it deals with other durable medical equipment. And I don't have a specific response for you. However, I would love to find one. So if you would reach out to me at mweaver at dralegal.org, I'd love to follow up on that conversation so that we can also get to other hands. All right, next hand. Area code 508. Good afternoon. This is Jane Perry from Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Debbie, this is the third time I've heard you speak. And this new lady, um, Meredith, I'm glad to hear that you both are members of ACB. I have twofold issues. First... Okay, um, okay, Jane, Jane, hold on. We've got a lot of hands, so how about just one of them? Okay, I just want to say that to the lady, Chris, I was a healthcare professional, a health unit coordinator. I lost my job 17 years ago. So education is an issue. And now I'm a patient. So my question is actually to Meredith. I understand that there's Title IV, which is communication for the blind and visually impaired and hearing impaired. Why can't we tap into that to get things done? And stay tuned because there is going to be information coming forth with for next year's conference about mandatory in-service. Thank you very much. So are you talking about problems with uh, communication access? Yes. I think that the laws that we usually operate under in terms of holding uh, entities accountable are the ones with independent rights of action because we primarily do litigation. And the ones that we use are the, the effective communication requirements under Title II and Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act um, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. Right. But I do a lot of advocacy and I'm learning now about the other two titles. And as far as getting communication or getting things accessible, like the forms, I have people send me my forms and I fill them out. But, you know, I think that we need to look at that title to get communication involved. Thank you. I'm not familiar with Title IV specifically covering communication for these types of entities, but it is specifically covered under Title II and Title III and the regulations they're under. Thank you, but I just wanted to put that in your bug in your ear. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jane. Next hand. Michael Byington, you may speak. All right, Uh, Yes, I think this uh, question is probably more appropriately directed to Meredith, although either are welcome to comment. My question is about equally effective communications uh, with regard to medical billing. And my experience has been that attempts at accommodation often fall short. if you get a Braille bill, uh, which you usually can't get, but if you do, 
It's uh, formatted so that you can't really get the details. Speech screen readers certainly don't work very well with them. And I can tell you firsthand that low vision aids for someone who doesn't scan a document well visually. It takes forever to find, for example, how much has the insurance paid? Mm -hmm. And did the insurer confuse the primary and secondary insurance, uh, which results in you being charged a lot more money than you're supposed to be charged? Mm -hmm. My question is, I'm aware of uh, certainly the obligations under the ADA, but in looking at a functionally effective accommodation to that issue, it seems to me like oftentimes it's hard to even know who the responsible accommodator is. Certainly, if you get a mid-range medical billing person, they have trouble understanding all of this and providing the information you need. And I realize that people with intellectual disabilities, with other disabilities, have this same problem. But if you have any kind of a disability, interpreting that bill is a lot tougher. And no matter what your intellectual capabilities are, sometimes you need some assistance. So could you address accommodations in that area? You're absolutely right that the obligation is to provide effective communication of that information. But you've also pinpointed kind of one of the problems of effectuating that is, what does that mean? And who's responsible? And do they know what it means? And do they know how to do it? And there are a lot of problems there. Like, does the billing department even understand what accommodations are available or how to go about getting them? How do they provide a document that is accessible for a screen reader or request uh, a Braille billing statement, let alone make that billing statement formatted in the proper way? Those things to that level of detail aren't typically things that are challenged in lawsuits and covered. And so it's a lot of kind of a fact-specific question, case-by-case basis. But functionally, what I would say is communicate as much as possible. And I'm interested to hear what Deborah has to say too, because of her experience and um, guidance in this area, but communicate as much as possible what information you do have and feel that you're lacking to the billing folks, what information you feel that you need, and try as best you can to, to figure out a way to get that information. You can also file a grievance to make a, an official complaint so it's on the books To what extent that's going to actually solve the problem? Probably not much. Um, So I guess I would suggest in a very kind of practical approach of communication as much as possible with the billing uh, representative. Deborah, I, I agree. I think more and more, there was a time when I wanted everything to be sent to me in Braille. And the more victories that we had with regard to having documents Brailled and sent to us, the happier I thought I would be. But I don't feel that way anymore because the formatting is so complicated and it's it's so often done poorly. So there's all this paper wasted and it's delayed. I think the best approach, and then each of us are different. You know, some of us are, you know, fluent Braille readers and some of us are minimal Braille readers and some of us need large print and some of us need a different kind of large print, et cetera, et cetera. I think that the more logical approach is to educate one another about interacting directly with billing and educating one another on using apps and the availability of apps. This is the direction I personally am going. 
I get my explanation of benefits statements in Braille, and I feel guilty because there's like 30 pages to talk about two appointments. And it's like, this is ridiculous. And it's not even, you know, the Braille is not very high quality Braille. And it just, I think, you know, it's better to just use a scanning app, or if I don't understand, to call the medical facility and say, what does this mean? Explain this to me. Maybe that sounds simplistic, but I really think it's a better approach. And if we talk to one another about that and educate one another, then it also has the payoff of getting each of us as individuals more personally invested in our own personal medical care. So I'm going to try for a quick one more hand, but it's got to be about a two-minute question and answer here because we're going to have to wrap it up. Lynn Corral, you may speak. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that a lot of times, um, my son actually went with me to one part, uh, department when I broke my hip in, in, uh, in August, and he said the doctor, the, the nurse practitioner didn't even listen to me. I think this is a real problem. I think that when doctors don't listen to us, when they assume that Blindness is the thing we want to talk about. When I had colitis in, the, in my 40s, I want to talk about that instead of the colitis that I was dealing with. I mean, I think that this is a real problem. And I think that when doctors won't fill out a HIPAA form because they think that that's violating HIPAA if they fill it out for you. I mean, I've had real problems with doctors thinking that I'm stupid and, and don't have any agency. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a great panel. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everybody's questions. We are about running out of time. I want to really thank my two panelists. I think that the breadth and the soft versus hard directions in which they've gone with these answers have just painted a great picture for us. And uh, on behalf of the ABL, thank you, Deborah, and thank you, Meredith, for being with us today. The closing codes for CEU. 10773. So 10773. Thank you to Debbie Hazelton. Thank you to Penny. And thank you all of you for being here.